Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers throughout all of the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibbeth of Saul, they said they reported the matter to the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them into pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Saul shall reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jack. How's everybody doing? Good. All right, we're ready to go. I know this is a serious story here, Saul and fighting, and it might be random if you've never been to church before. Welcome. My name's Josh, and I get to teach this story out of the book of 1 Samuel. So we as a church, Redemption Church, really believe, like Andrew said, that this is the Word of God, that this is God speaking to us through his word, through his story. That's why we stand to honor him uh, because we believe this is how God has spoken. Like we just saw the pictures of space and the big hubbub of we see so much more of space now. The God who created all that didn't just want to show off in the universe. He wanted to be known through his word. So what we do when we gather is we try to lean in, put our heads in our Bibles and get to know him a little bit more 
each week. And that's what we get to do. So we're in this book of First Samuel. We're three weeks in now, and we're going to be here until we get to basically Advent, Christmas time. And as I've been thinking about this series, Old Testament, sort of all these random guys, some people are famous. David's pretty famous. Solomon's pretty famous. Saul, to a lesser degree, is famous. What's my hope? What's my prayer for us as a church? And here's sort of how I'd summarize it, is I want us to get to know the characters in this story a little bit better. Not because any of them bring life, but because they highlight God. And they highlight what God is doing in this world. They highlights the type of people that God works with and uses and saves and redeems. So I want to get to know the characters. I want us to leave church a little better understanding who Saul is. And I want us to know God's story more. I want us to know, like, what is the story of God? But more than anything, I want us to know who the hero of this book is. I want us to know Jesus more. And I think we can meet Jesus by looking at these men and these women in this Old Testament chunk of the Bible right here a little bit more. So that being said, I also know that this book is daunting. Like for my first five years of my Christian walk, I did not open it. Laziness part of it, youth part of it, but also it's just a daunting book. Like where do I start? You know, how do I read this? There's a bunch of stuff that makes no sense to me. How do I get a hold of this book? So each Sunday, I hope this Bible sort of becomes a little more accessible to us. Last week, I shared sort of my overview of the Old Testament. I want to share it again just because I think it's helpful, not because I came up with it, because I think it does sort of give us a summary. So if you look at the Old Testament, which is the bulk of the Bible, so here to here, the bulk of the story is only covered in 17 out of the 39 Old Testament books. And here's how I'd summarize what God is doing in this Old Testament story. The first five books written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are God is God taking a people and making them into a people. So we start with Adam and Eve, branches out, and then you have all these nations. They spread out, different languages pop up, different cultures pop up, and he grabs Abraham. He says, you're mine. Look up at the stars. Can you count the stars? Nope, that's going to be your descendants. And the rest of that section of the Old Testament is God starting to form the seed of Abraham into a people. You fast forward, you get past Deuteronomy, and then you get to the point where they're no longer slaves. So at some point, through trickery and brother shenanigans, one of them gets sold into slavery, and then they become this huge nation of slaves, 2.5 million slaves in Egypt, and Egypt is ruling over them as slaves. And God rescues them with the person of Moses. He takes them through the, the Red Sea. He parts the sea and they're saved. And now they're out and they're looking out and they're like, what do we do next? This next section is, hey, set up shop. This is where you guys are going to be my people. This is your land. This is your zip code for the next however many years. That's what those next three sections are. And then they're there. They've got a people. They've got a land. And then they start to look around as all of us do. The Bible would say it's discontentment. It's not being content with what you have and what God has given you. Israel starts to look out, look out, look out. Ah, but the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Canaanites, they have a king. And we just have you and your word, but they got a king. We want a king. He's like, you don't want a king. No, we do. No, just follow my leading the way I've set it up. No, I want to be like those guys. Fine, I will give you a king. And that's what we enter into. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles is God giving Israel what they wanted, which was not best, but God can work with what is not best and still make something great. And that's the section we're in now where he gives them a king, which they asked for. And he said, uh, okay. And then fast forward, 
everything gets screwed up. Why? Because they want to be like the nations. So the nations take them over, disperse them, deport them. And we got Babylon and Assyria and all these famous empires sort of demolish Israel and they're in exile. And the last part of the Bible in the Old Testament, at least story-wise, is Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now, we're the people of God. He gave us a law. He gave us a king. He gave us a land. And now we don't have a king. We don't have land. We still have the law. How do we live as the people of God without land and king? In other words, how do we live scattered on this earth and still faithfully serve Yahweh? That's how the Old Testament ends. So that's sort of the flow of the Old Testament. So back to that middle slide there about the kings. This is where we're at, is first and second Samuel. We as a church leadership, pastors, what do we need right now? We need to dive into God's story. We need to learn from the kings and the kingdoms and the rise and fall of Israel as a nation and as a king. So what we see today is the first sort of victory, the first sort of like, ah, I knew Saul had something in him moment. The first time a king of Israel acts like a king of Israel and actually does something that benefits Israel. That's what we get to see today. But here's what I want to do, just because at certain points we're going to try to cover two, three chapters over the course of the series. This one's just one, so it's not too bad. I want to just walk through the story of Saul and his first victory here. And then I want to look at what happens to the people of God when they experience salvation. I want to see the transformation that happens to the people of God when the Savior comes and actually saves them. So we're going to look at the story of Saul, and then for us, what happens in the life of a person when they experience salvation from God? So that's what we're going to do. I want to pray and just ask God to sort of quiet our hearts. We all fluttered in here, some of us kids, some of us frantic. I just wanted to take some space and kind of, as my kids would say, chill out a little bit. Chill out, bro. Let's chill out a little bit. Quiet our hearts. God, in the silence, I pray that you are preparing our hearts to hear to a watching world that desires power and influence and control and comfort and success. We as a people gather here and sit under the preach word of a very old story about a king that has long died, but somehow points to the king that will never die again. So God, we just acknowledge the foolishness of what we're doing, but we also acknowledge that you do mighty things when your people believe in the foolishness of the gospel and that you spoke, you are speaking still by your spirit, and we ask that you speak in this moment now. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. All right, so 1 Samuel, let's just kind of walk through this. Here's my big idea if you're a note taker. I do this for my wife. She takes notes, great notes. The salvation of the king always brings transformation. So the salvation of God's king always does something in the lives of, he doesn't save so that we could sit back and say, oh, that was nice and get back to life as normal. He saves so that we might be transformed. But like I said, I want to walk through and just see the story of Mr. Saul here. Um, and I don't, I don't know how like, much church background you have. Saul is a character, like I said last week, that has a lot of baggage. He's seen as a sort of shady character, evil character. And I sort of walked into this preparing to preach last week and in this series. Like Saul's going to be a, basically a dirtbag. And I've been proven wrong. Up to this point, even in this chapter here, Saul is yet to do something that I can point to and say, that's evil, that's wicked. 
The way I picture him, I was trying to picture, like, what is Saul like in this story? It's like the story's going on, and Saul said, hey, you on stage. And Saul's like, no. He's like, you on stage. And God has to keep bringing Saul and putting him in the center of the story. And he's like, wanders off the stage. And he's like, no, 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 it's your time. And that's what we're seeing here. Saul, you're the king. Oh, no, no, no. Saul, they need salvation. No, I'm, I want to hang out with my oxen. You get right here. So God is taking Saul and putting him here and say, look at Saul. Now let's look at why Saul is important to this story. Israel has a big problem. Chapter 11, verse 1. Two and three. Let's read one first. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty, treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Verse 3, the elders of Jabesh said to them, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, here's the tagline of the whole chapter 11, If there is none to save us, we will then give ourselves up to you. So what is happening? Saul, you're king. I don't want to. So he's off stage. So Israel's sitting there. And Israel's very worried about the West because the Philistines are in the West. And we need a king because Philistines are going to kick our butt. So picture Arizona and California. We, we know California is a problem. We want to keep them out of here. We need a king to keep all those stinking California people from coming over here. We're facing California. Let's deal with this. And then right in chapter 11, the East pops into play in this little podunk town, Jabesh Gilead. So then New Mexico, like some little tribe from Las Cruces, New Mexico, is on the scene, and their leader knocks on this little podunk Israelite town, Jabesh Gilead, and said, hey, I'm going to kill you. And they said, whoa, 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 we'll serve you. What is going on? They're looking at Philistines, Jabesh Gilead, how is this even, what's going on? Just a little backstory on Jabesh Gilead. It's got a little bit of uh, famousness with the people that Saul would be acquainted with. So the Benjamites, the tribe of Benjamin. So there's 12 tribes of Israel. Saul comes from the line of Benjamin. Benjamin has a, the most uh, black mark on their record out of all of Israel. They're the only people to ever be involved in a civil war. So Israel has one civil war in their total history, and it's with themselves, and it's all the tribes against Benjamin. It was at the end of the book of Judges. Judges 19, 20, 21, the Benjamites go to battle. And what happens? Israel kicks Benjamites' butt, obviously, because it's way outnumbered. So a lot of the men die. A lot of the people die. But them being a story people, knowing all these tribes are included in the promise of God, we need to keep Benjamin going. We need to keep this Benjamite, Benjamite thing going. What are we going to do? Let's call all the towns that did not send soldiers to the Civil War and say, send us your virgins so that we can give them to the men that remain in Benjamin, in the tribe of Benjamin, so that they can repopulate and sort of get back to an established setting. So they do that. A few towns sort of don't participate. Jabesh Gilead is one of them. They sort of hold their people back. It's found out. So they go to Jabesh Gilead, take 400 virgins, give them to the Benjamites, and Jabesh Gilead is sort of the rebirth part of the story for the tribe of Benjamin. So Saul of Benjamin, who's now prince, going to be king soon, he's wandering in the field, and his place, like his historical significant place, is being attacked by this king saying, you come and serve me. And what do they say? Whoa, 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 whoa. Verse 3. Give us a few days. Let's go through all of Israel. 
And if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. So there's the problem. We need a savior. And just to remind you how we ended last week, Saul's brought in. This is going to be the prince. The very end is sort of the peanut gallery, these people yelling as Saul's presented after he comes out of hiding because he's sort of a bashful, not really supposed to be there sort of guy. He comes out, he's hiding in the luggage, stands up, and they're like, that's the king. And the end of chapter 10 is some worthless fellows say, how can this man save us? Who was just hiding in the trunk because he's too scared to step up. Now Israel's being attacked on the east. Who's going to save us? Give us seven days. We're going to go find somebody to save us. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. What's the report? We're being attacked on the east. Tears, tears, tears. I thought we were going to do better than this. Verse 5. And here comes our character getting pulled back on the scene by God. Verse 5. Now behold... Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. So now Paul, or Saul gets brought into the problem. The town, Jabesh Gilead, yes, I'm very aware of it, is going to be attacked. They're going to be made servants. There's no one there to save them. What happens, very next verse, God in his spirit, in his sovereignty, steps in as he does, and he's going to fix this through a man of his choosing. Verse 6. And the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when, these, when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Again, I, Saul is never like, I'm the king. He's always brought on the scene, and now God is like, you are the man for this job, and the spirit comes on him. He's anointed. Now, don't think this spirit, like, uh, if you're not a Christian, uh, part of being a Christian is we believe that God fills us with his Holy Spirit. We are now new creations. So when I repent, say, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I trust in Jesus. I am forgiven of all my sins, and in that moment, I have given the Holy Spirit, and God himself, the creator, through his spirit, is now living and dwelling in me. I know it sounds crazy, but it is true. And that's what's happened when you become a Christian. This is not that moment. All throughout the Old Testament, there's sort of these temporary moments where the Spirit rushes on people to accomplish a task for God's work that needs to get done. And the Spirit rushes upon Saul, and his anger is greatly kindled. And in verse 7, we just see how sort of primitive he is. His Spirit doesn't come upon him, and then he turns into the Messiah we've all been waiting for. And he goes to a cross and dies for our sins. No, he answers like a man who is angry. What answer? What does he do? Verse 7. He took a yoke of oxen. So he was just hanging out with the oxen. And he's like, all right. Jerry, whatever the ox name is, come over here. I've never had an I don't know how you name an oxen. But he takes his oxen and he cuts his oxen to pieces. And he sends them throughout the territory, territory of Israel by the hand of of the messenger. So just pause right there. He takes an oxen and he dices it up into pieces. Primitive. That's the guy you chose? Yeah. The, the Bible is a mixed bag. Why? Because we are a mixed bag. The Bible doesn't try to gloss over and make us look better than we are. Spirit's on him and his response is a sort of primitive, I'm going to dice this thing up and I'm going to make a point. What's he do here? Um, verse 7. Here's a saying in the middle of seven. Whoever does not come after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, obviously, and they came out as one man. 
So picture, what is it? A piece of oxen. This is going to happen to you unless you join us. And dread fell upon the land. Saul accomplishes what he wants to do. Verse 8, when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel, here's how many people he convinced through this method, 300,000, and the men of Judah was 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead. Now let's talk about the battle at hand over in the east. The New Mexicans have crossed the border. We need to battle them. Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. We've got 330,000 soldiers. Tell that little town that they're going to be fine. Tomorrow when the afternoon kicks in and we start to sweat, the battle will be over. Middle of verse 9. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad that salvation we were asking for at the beginning of this chapter, the plan has been enacted. Verse 10. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. They were originally going to give themselves to the king, the evil king from the outside. Whoever's coming within Israel, coming from our own lineage, coming from our own people, we will give ourselves to you. You are the Savior we wanted. Verse 11. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. So the battle begins. The Ammonites are defeated. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. We need to be saved. Spirit comes on the anointed one of God. In a primitive way, he sets out a plan to save his people. This should be ringing lots of bells. And he enacts that plan and his people are saved. Little Jabesh that nobody cares about is Saved. Why? Because God sent his anointed one to do the work of salvation. Verse 12, then what is the response now? Again, Saul is still more positive than anything. Neutral at worst, positive at best. Verse 12, then when the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may, be put, that we may put them to death. Stop right there. That's the end of, remember, there's our king. That goofy guy that just came out of the trunk. Yeah, that's our king. Ah. That guy's going to save us? And now people are like, where are those people? We want to slaughter them right now. And this is Saul, verse 13, stepping in. Saul says, not a man shall be put to death this day. And he says the most true thing in the Bible, the most true thing in the world for today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. You guys are focusing on petty stuff. God's salvation was just worked before our very eyes. We don't need to be worrying about what people said in the newspaper yesterday. Today, the Lord has worked salvation. Verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. First time Saul is called king and who calls him king? The people who received his salvation. You're our king. We cried out for salvation. We got a savior even better. You're our king king and then they worship they create a worship set there there they sacrifice peace offerings before the lord and there saw and all the men of israel rejoice greatly end of story saul's character is still intact as we turn the pages it's going to get nasty but for now as we stop here and the spirit speaks to us up to this point in the story what do we learn 
that salvation always brings transformation. We've been looking at Saul and what he did. I want to now spin it and just see the transformation that happened in the people. And by extension, with a better Savior and King in Jesus, the transformation that happens in us by faith in Jesus Christ. So what are the transformations we see happening in the people of God through this? Here's the first one. Is we are transformed from sorrow to joy. We are transformed from sorrow to joy. How does this story start? Verse 4, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. What did it feel like to be a person in the kingdom of God before the Savior showed up? It felt like we just want to get together and cry because life is not as it should be. They wept aloud. How does this verse end? At the very end, verse 15, they, they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. What did Saul do? He took their sorrow and he turned it into rejoicing and rejoicing greatly. What does Jesus do? He takes our sorrow and he turns it into joy and rejoicing greatly. Why? That's what salvation does. It brings transformation. I just want to ask you, rhetorically, don't shout out answers. It would get awkward. Before Jesus... Like, if it's a moment, my kids, we talk about this, and they're like, well, our testimony is not going to be as crazy as Cody Lingabach's, right? I'm like, I hope not. <laughs> if I'm doing my job halfway decent, I hope not. But that doesn't make it irrelevant. It makes it beautiful in its own way. But they're still in them, each of my boys, in us. What are we like apart from Jesus? What marks us apart from Jesus? Before Jesus steps in, before the Savior shows up to Jabez Gilead, wherever you were to go fix and to save and to help you, what were you like? I know what I was like. I looked good, not physically, I mean, as good as I do now, but younger. <laughs> Decent grades, like the oldest athlete, all this. But if I had to like summarize my life and my soul and just sort of who I was as a person, I was purposeless. I had no purpose, and I was so insecure, like so insecure, like every waking moment, I had to battle this sort of anxiety of like, what do people think of me? What am I thinking? Whether it's on the baseball field, whether it's with dating, whether it's in a school setting, like, and part of that's teenagers, years are terrible, and teenagers are giant turds, but beyond, it's also like inside of me. There was nothing of substance. Apart from Jesus, I was full of insecurity. What were you like before Jesus? What were the people of Jabesh Gilead like before Saul showed up? They were weeping bitterly, hopeless, desperate, scared, fearful, crossing their fingers that something might come. Without Jesus, we're all left to ourselves. And what does Jesus do? Jesus comes and like shines a light on those insecurities and reminds you that yeah, that's you. Yeah, Josh, that is you. You don't live up. John, the Gospel of John says, he came to give us life and life more abundantly. The king of these evil outside countries are coming to kill and take them and make them serve him. It says Jesus came to give life and life more abundantly period. Like as I was praying this morning for us, like what, whatever you need to do to sort of rev up for the day, part of it should be remembering that. Jesus, who are you? You're the one that came to give me life. 
in life to the fullest. Help me remember that as the noise increases throughout my day. What were you like without Jesus? Were you as messed up as me? I don't know. But we all can remember like, ah. And I just picture salvation for these people and they see Saul and the salvation comes. It's like that's, the Christian life is a billion times better than what they received. All they received was temporary reprieve from an outside military source. I received soul care for eternity. A friend for eternity, a heavenly father for eternity, a savior that will never let go of me. Why? Because Jesus showed up. What is better than that? Like, what is better than Jesus? Eli Steinbrecher, he worships in the night. He is wonderful. He always like, I don't know why people don't get louder in worship. Like, what has Jesus done for you? He's forgiven me of a whole lot. I said, amen. He has, Eli. What has Jesus done for you? Like, where are you going to find life and life to the fullest? inheritance like my two of my kids stay with my mom and she did the tour which she does from time to time of our inheritance which is little pockets of things she has hidden throughout her house that's my mom so she's got like 465 bucks in one drawer she's like don't tell anyone in the gun safe she's got a thousand two hundred bucks that I guess me and my three sisters are supposed to arm wrestle over so like here's some like here's all the family tree you'd ever want to know, tracing you all the way back to Mexico and Ireland. I'm like, I don't care about either of those, but thank you. <laughs> some of you actually have like a legit inheritance you're gonna get. I don't have that. <laughs> but even that is not Jesus. Some of you it's youth and looks. Aubrey's line, my wife says, age wins. Where are you at the peak? You're coming to the peak. There's <laughs> it's happening. Like, what is it? It's Jesus is the goal. Good meals. We just had our anniversary. And I had amazing steak and great drinks. And like 2.4 hours later, I'm hungry again. (laughs) I'm like, I could use some Fruity Pebbles or something right now. It's like everything in this world has diminishing returns except for Christ. Jesus. And Saul gives us a little picture of the salvation that comes. He turns our sorrow into joy. The Apostle Paul, I think, summarizes our heartbeat, what we want to be our heartbeat better than anything. He says this, I count everything as loss. Everything out there, all the food, all the inheritance, all the looks, all the success, all the employment, everything, all the businesses, whatever you can think of, I count as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, garbage, dung. Why? In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Salvation is not given to us just to give us a peaceful, secure life. It's given to us so that we might know Christ and know him fully and see everything else as rubbish. That's the first transformation we see in Saul. Here's the second one, transformation number two. From being a never enough people to a gospel completion people. What do I mean by that? What is, how is sin sort of characterized in this story? If Saul's the savior figure, the people of God are the people needing rescuing, sin is seen through an outside king who comes in, and what does he do? He wants them to serve him. Not just serve him sort of neutrally and like, I'll pay you an equal tit for tat sort of thing. You're going to serve me and also I'm going to gouge out your eye. And I'm going to send you off into the work field. And you're going to serve me with your right eye missing, with disgrace upon you for the rest of your life. What is that? That is a picture of 
sin. We live in a world where sin is simply this, serving the wrong master. As I talk to people, it's been fascinating, just all my neighbors, all the people I've been meeting that have yet to come to this church yet, but I'm praying they will. I think people have a general view of sort of religious zeal or atheism in this sort of way. There's this religious zealot types. Well, you're a pastor, so you must be one of those people that are like crazy about Jesus. Sure, whatever. And there's like a few other people that are crazy, and they are all about their God or whatever it is. And then you got people on the opposite end that are crazy about their anti-God stuff. They're atheists. They totally... But I think most people see the world like 80%. The biggest chunk of the world is sort of neutral participants in a neutral world. And that's not the picture the Bible paints. Like even in the story, Israel's option were serve the king from the outside who's going to make you serve him until the day you're dead and there's going to be shame and disgrace upon your head for the rest of your life. Or call out for salvation from somebody within Israel who can come and save you. Two options. Jesus says the same thing. You can only serve one master. You got two options. Yeah, I mean, just listen to some of the words of Jesus. He says this to a crowd of people. You are the father, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do his desires. Like Jesus wasn't like, about 80% of you have yet to sort of lean in a direction. 10% you're leaning the right way. 10% I'm very scared about where you're heading. But 80%, I just want to kind of lay before you a logical explanation. No, baseline Without Jesus intervening in our life, we are serving the devil, and we're doing the will of our father, the devil. Now, if you're like been invited by someone who's like the first time, like, how was church? He called me the devil. <laughs> he said, I'm following the devil. I did say that, so I don't want you to go and not hear that. But that's everyone. Because we are created to serve and to worship and to follow someone. So we come into this world, and by default, that's the way our heart functions. And Satan, the great deceiver, has grabbed hold of us because our first father, Adam, was a sinner, and he served the wrong master, and now that gene has been passed down. And now by just will with inside of us and by our own choices, we serve the wrong master. So we see this. Sin is serving something other than Christ. But more than that, I, just th- I love the picture of the gouge out your eyes and put disgrace on you. What is the end result of sin? If Satan was to like lay out his cards and really like be honest with us and say, here's, here's what I want you to do is sin, and here's where it's going to lead, what would be his game plan? It would be ultimately this, that it would lead to shame that we can never get out of. Like you see it in the garden. Genesis 1 and 2, everything is perfect. Adam and Eve are living in union. They're walking around naked in the garden, just so enjoying life. Communion with God. God says, hey, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. Just that one tree, hands off. Okay. God walks away. And she gave it to her husband who was with her, and they ate. And immediately, what happens? Their eyes were open, and they're aware of shame that was not there before. And they look down and they're shamed. They look at each other and they're shamed. They look around and they start to think, oh, God's going to come back. And they run away because they're shamed. So sin is serving the wrong master. And the wrong master, the only reward he can give for your sin is shame and guilt and fear. But what is shame? What is disgrace? What does it mean to like live? Because you're like, am I, do I have shame? 
it's even like a hard like emotion to describe. Like, do you know when you're angry? Yeah. You know when you're hungry? Yeah. You know when you're confused? Yeah. Do you know when shame is at the core of what you're feeling? It's sort of this like hard to pin down feeling that is universal to humanity since we fell in Genesis 3. But there's an author, he's a brain doctor, he's a Christian, he does a lot of work, Kurt Thompson. He does a lot of good job in this book, uh, what's it called, Anatomy of Shame, trying to describe what shame is. And I think this description gets at it. One way to approach its essence, meaning shame, is to understand it as an undercurrent of a sensed emotion. Just stop right there a second. So it's not like this anger, we can totally spot it and identify it. It's this undercurrent that's kind of always at play with all these other emotions involved too, but it's always the undercurrent. Well, if we had to put words to it, what does that undercurrent feel like? It would declare some version of this. I am not enough. There is something wrong with me. I am bad and or I don't matter. What does it feel like to be human in a fallen world? If we pulled up the hood, we're serving the wrong master. If we pulled up the hood of our heart and tried to dissect, we feel not enough. There's something wrong with me. I'm not big enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not successful enough. I'm just not enough. Where's that come from? From serving the king who came from the east with lies and deception. But more than that, what does shame do as it plays itself out in this world in our life? Shame is not a co- just a consequence, meaning that it's not just stuck there in the garden as like part of the story. It still has these ripple effects. And here's what shame is doing. It is the emotional weapon that evil uses to corrupt our relationships with God and each other. Why is your relationship with the Lord right now not as strong as it could be? However you want to describe strong. Like none of us would be bold and say, well, it's God's fault. So what about me is making my relationship with God not as strong as it should be? Well, I I only read the Bible for seven minutes this week. No, it's this. It's shame. It's that effect, that undercurrent inside all of us where I'm not good enough. I shouldn't turn towards him because I don't live up to whatever I need to live up to for God to turn and smile towards me. That's human nature. And we're all dressing it up and covering up in a variety of ways that I'm not enough piece of our heart. But that's what shame is. Sin is serving, and all it does is bring shame, period. Now, how do you battle that shame? Like that feeling, Cody Lingelbach, I said, because I was like trying to understand, this was like a year ago having a conversation. What is shame? I know what guilt feels like. What is Cody had the best, he's like, you feel like this big in every room you're in. Like some of you are like, dude, you thinking just nailed me to the wall. I feel this big. Well, how do you go from feeling this big to feeling proper size? Like for my kids, as I think about praying for them and what I want as far as money, success, career, like at the core, I want this. I want them to have, it's on all their prayer cards, humble swagger. I want every room they're in for them to just, you're like, you got it. You know it. I've seen your boys. They are swaggerly. They swagger everywhere. I want them to just like have this strut about them. But I want it to be humble, meaning it does not come from their accomplishments, their athletic skills, their looks, their money, their academics, any of that. It comes from knowing that God, who should turn his face from them, looks at them and smiles because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. A humble swagger. How do you get from this big to that big. It's not by being better. 
Well, it's like, it's not by eliminating the bad stuff in your life. That stuff will help temporarily. The answer is found actually in this text. Verse 13. What was the solution to keeping Israelites from being stuck in their servitude and shame? Verse 13. Not a, Saul says, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today what has God done? The Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Nothing about anything in any of the Israelites was going to be the solution to their problem. Saul says, what happened today is the Lord worked salvation for Israel. That is a precursor. That is a foreshadowing. That is a whisper towards the gospel. What is the gospel? That God has done the work necessary to bring us back to him. All of us are broken. All of us like Adam and Eve are on various pursuits away from God. We are running and hiding and taking whatever we can to sort of eliminate the shame that we're not enough. We don't have enough. We can't be enough. So we're running. And what does God do? He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to do the work. He worked salvation. The Lord has worked salvation. Here's what religion says. Do this and God will be okay with you. Christianity, at least true Christianity, the gospel Christianity is Jesus has done this stop and believe it the Lord has worked salvation he did the work all of your shortcomings are very much real and sinful and wrong and should be punished and should keep you from the Lord but the cross of Jesus Christ covers all that sin and eliminates none of us did that work Jesus Christ did the work period like, that's why we sing. We don't sing songs about anyone in this room. None of us are on any of these lyrics. It's Jesus. Why? Because he did the work. We're watching The Chosen with our kids. We just started. Everybody's raving about it. We got like two episodes in. And I'm like, I just, I cry a lot through each episode. First episode, Jesus shows up at the very end. Sorry to give it away, but it's like four years old now. And Lily who's actually married, but nobody knows that, except for her creator. She's demon-possessed. She lives in the dark parts of town. She's mistreated by men. She's always on the fringe. She just looks disheveled. Everyone dismisses her. She has one friend in the bar that kind of tries to look out for her, but everyone else, like, she's that person. And it's all about just this angst inside of her, like, I can't beat this. She contemplates suicide, there's a dove that sends her in a direction to not do that. And lo and behold, this guy from Nazareth shows up and says, Mary, the first time anyone uses her real name, she turns around. <laughs> he grabs her and heals her. Episode over. I'm like, I can't. <laughs> Episode two, play. What's going to happen next? And it's all about Nicodemus, who was this religious leader who's in the New Testament, who they brought in to try to fix her. And he does this thing, and he's like, that didn't work. But some guy comes and says, Mary, Lily, she's fixed. That girl that you, you did the work. And he's like, I did not do the work. So he goes in looking for her, and he finds her. He says, do you remember me? No, I don't remember you. I prayed for you, and I did incense, and I did the holy work for you. And it worked. She's like, you didn't do this. Well, who did it? I don't know his name. What's his name? I don't know. She says, I know this. I was one way. Now I'm completely different. The only thing that's different was him. 
That is the gospel. We're all one way. Sinners, full of shame, guilt, fear. We want to be a different way. How do we get there? It's him. It's trusting that Jesus Christ did the work necessary to take Mary and to heal her and to cleanse her and to make her worthy yet again. And he does the same, and he's still doing the work. That's what salvation is. That's what a Savior does. He saves. He takes us to our final transformation. Once we meet the Savior, what happens? We worship him. Final transformation is this. We go from receiving salvation to worshiping the king. Saul has saved them. He wins the battle. He defeats the enemy. He fixes the problem. Verse 13, what, or 15, what is their response? So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. They made him king, and there they sacrificed peace, sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Jesus is the king. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do, who's Jesus? If he's just a savior, you haven't come full circle in your transformation. He's more than just a savior here to fix your sin and to keep you out of whatever punishment you picture down the road. He is here to be worshiped and to be made king. One of my favorite pastors in Dallas says this, that basically Jesus has too many options on the table that he's competing with with who gets to be king. He says, today, Jesus has too many other masters in most of our lives to whom he has to compete with. But the important thing to remember is this, that Jesus is not willing to be a one among many. He will not be a part of an association or a club. He is not, neither is he willing to be relegated as some personal assistant. Jesus as the king means that Jesus is to be the one and only supreme ruler and master in your life. He calls the shots, and he is to be acknowledged in everything that is done. Translation, the Savior becomes the king, and he is in charge. How do you get to have a relationship with that Savior who's also the king? Book of Romans says this, If you confess Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is the Lord, Paul says, you will be saved. Like, I don't know everyone in this room. We got young people. We got less young people. <laughs> but you've got sin in your life. You've got inadequacy in your life. You've got shame in your life. You've got a lot of things that you are not going to be able to fix, no matter how much time on earth God gives you. But there's a Savior we meet in the Scriptures, and his name's not Saul. His name is Jesus. He says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the king, you will be saved, period. Have you done that yet? If you've done that, then praise God. And as we sing and worship the rest, praise God for the transformation that he started in your life and he will bring to completion. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your saving work. Thank you for the Spirit's willingness and ability to open our eyes to see that our work is all in vain. That anything inside of us that thinks we're going to work or do enough or be enough or have enough to get to the point where the shame or the sin is dealt with is foolishness. But none of us see that on our own. We only see that because your spirit opens our eyes to the foolishness of life apart from you. And then in your grace, you take our head 
like you did with Mary in that show, and you turn it towards the Savior, and you show us the true Savior, the true King. So God, turn our heads once again. We all come in here with distractions and things we want to be looking at and gazing upon and spending our energy towards what we need is you. What we need is a bigger, more beautiful picture of you as our Savior and as our King. So I pray even as we worship here for the rest of the service, that would happen. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.